Yeah. <laughs> it's senior, bitch. Yeah. Welcome. Let me do my thing. Let me talk my shit. Let me do my dance. Let me talk my shit. What's up? Yeah. Yo, welcome to another exciting episode of Hashtag That's My Best Friend. It's your boy, Nick, a.k.a. The King, NML, back at it again. And, of course, I'm joined by a few good men. I got Marv. Marv Gotti, what's up? Peace, peace, and blessings. Hope everybody's good. JV, what you doing? Yo, yo. What's good, everybody? CP, the producer. What's new? What's good? What's good? I'm on JV time tonight, fellas. I can see <laughs> See, hang time looking, looking, looking all right, looking respectable. Marquise, Keys underscore no E. What's up? Yo, 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 what's good, everybody? John looked like one of them, one of them, them Lauderdale boys right now, boy. <laughs> no, you, you know how I many them, them, them Gator boys out there, you know what I mean? Them Zoes. <laughs> they from Dade, you from Dade County. <laughs> Broward, Broward. <laughs> That's crazy. And uh, we are joined by a special guest. Um, we have Anthony Faison. How are you doing today, Anthony? How are you? I'm fine, brothers. Thanks for having me. Perfect. And we'll get into um, Anthony and his story in just a second. Um, again, first, I want to say shout out to everyone that is checking us out live on Caffeine. We appreciate you. We are on Caffeine every Monday at 9 p.m. So shout out to all our Caffeine subscribers. Shout out to all our YouTube subscribers. Also, check us out on the live um, feed. Uh, make sure that you comment, like, and subscribe to all of our social medias. You can find them in the YouTube bio as well as Caffeine. Um, we're featured on Spotify. We're featured on Apple Music, um, SoundCloud. You name it, we're on it. Make sure you um, join the party. Um, how you guys been, though, this week? I know um, it was Father's Day yesterday, so, you know, shout out to all the fathers out there. Um did y'all speak to your fathers at all? I, I forgot. I'm, it was, I, you know, you know how that goes. But I, but I, but I, I, for, I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah, feel bad. Me, I mean, for me, I ain't. I didn't. You know, my pops passed away when I was younger. So my biological father rest up. And then um, I spoke with my step pops um, briefly yesterday. You know, what I'm saying, making sure he was getting pampered, just like he be pampering my moms and all that. You know what I mean? So. Mm. You know what I mean? Shout out to him. Salute to him for never overstepping his boundaries and showing me, you know what I'm saying, that it was one, I only saw one man next to my mom since my pops. And that's that says a lot about the woman that, you know what I'm saying, birthed me. So that's right. shout out to that. Um, and I was, you know, kicking it with some homies over the weekend. Shout out to my man, Qua, Crazy Qua, you know what I'm saying? AKA Entourage Qua and um, my boy Extra Shot for his birthday and his, his wife's birthday was like a few days after that. So we had a little birthday weekend. Um, in Florida, Fort Lauderdale area, and had a good time. You know what I'm saying? So, and so I didn't go. I didn't go raw. So you know what I'm saying? I strapped up. I ain't nobody, baby daddy out here. You hear me? You, you ain't gonna be on. The, you ain't gonna be a father on the next one. <laughs> Facts. <laughs> the next go around. God, God willing. <laughs> smart move. Smart move. Yeah. I'm, like I said, I forgot. Like I honestly meant to call my father. You know what I'm saying? Like I mean, mother. Everyone who knows me, like, my father wasn't, like, we just started rebuilding our relationship. So it's kind of, like, out of sight, out of mind sometimes. So it wasn't, it was no, like, 
no disrespect. Um, I did get to chill with um my wife's dad. You know, we were just kicking it, sipping that uh, Snoop Dogg wine. You know what I'm saying? Just chilling, man. Like he's like, you know, you, you know him. He's like he's in his seventies, but he's but he's like he acts just like one of the guys. So had a good time. I, I finally got to see my grandfather um, after a year. So I mean that was that was pretty cool too. You know what I mean? Like I hadn't seen him since before we went to DR back in 2019. So, you know, um, he didn't miss a beat. You know what I'm saying? He saw me. He was like, man, he's like, you just getting fat as hell. As usual, he was like, man, he was like, he said, you getting so, you're getting so damn fat, boy. I was like, I know. <laughs> and then we, we was just, um, we just kicked it. And he told me, like, we were just talking. Like I said, I said, what do you want for Father's Day? He said, yo, I just want you to make my, my pockets heavy. That's exactly what he said. He was like, yo. <laughs> He said, never tell. He said, he was like, he was like, don't let anyone ever tell you. Money ain't the most important thing in this world. He said, yo, you always got to have a dollar in your pocket. So, you know, I'm going to have to follow GP's advice show. Money got to be the move for 2021 all day. So mm -hmm. I was actually really hyped to get to see him. Um, I'm a plan on my goal. Now that they open his um, his nursing home up, is I'll probably make sure I go see him like every week, you know, so every Thursday. Just had that kick it, kick it with him. You know what I'm saying? Like I said, because I was really surprised. Like as soon as he saw me, he saw his face lit up, and he was like, "He just said my name." You know what I'm saying? Like and so that meant a lot to me. But you know, shout out to all the fathers, the new fathers, old fathers, um, fathers that don't even know they fathers. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> shout, shout, shout out, shout out to everybody. But yeah. But like I said, I'm glad that you guys um, enjoyed y'all week. Um, we do have a special guest. Um, I want to introduce Anthony Faison because um, we want to um, have a topic about um, police reform. So um, I'm gonna turn the I'm gonna turn the um, time over to Anthony so he can kind of discuss his story. You know, he's written a, a book about his experience, and I just want to give him the time and opportunity to like break it down. And after he breaks down his story, then we'll go ahead and we'll just have a, a discussion about police reform. Because, you know, of course, Anthony, as you know, we, we you know, we, we are some brothers. Like the thing about the premise behind this show is we we go there. We had a type of conversations, but a lot of people don't have those conversations, you know. And so we try to have those conversations even even before we ever had this podcast. Like these this group of fellas right here, we would just get up. Talk, 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 talk. And I mean, we talk about everything. So, I mean, we're very passionate about, you know, everything. So, again, first and foremost, thank you for taking the time to spend time with us, you know, and tell us your story. And like I said, the, the, the floor is all yours, sir. Thanks for having me, man. Well, you know, I'm originally from out of Queens. I was born in Queens, Hollis, Queens. And then I moved into Brooklyn in the late 70s where I was raised off of Marcy Avenue in Brooklyn, then into the Albany Projects out in Brooklyn, Crown Heights. And then in 1987, I was arrested by the 77 Precinct out of Brooklyn off of Utica Avenue. And they had to charge me with uh, killing a cab driver, actually right in front of my own housing projects. Um, I was arrested four months after the crime actually happened, at which time, Later found out from a cor corrupt police officer, mm -hmm. detective. I'll get into that shortly. But there was a young man who wanted to get a $1,000 tips reward from tips. He, you know, cracked back in the set 80s. Everybody know how that was, you know. It was devastating to the black and disenfranchised community. So he uh, went to the, met up with this corrupt detective and 
came up with a story and they falsely accused me of uh, killing this cab driver in front of the building. Uh, I spent the next uh, 15 years inside of prison from uh, Attica, Comstock, Clinton, Green Haven, and then finally to the Supermax down in Shawanga. During my time that I was actually incarcerated, I had embarked on a mission. And my mission was to prove my innocence. I knew I didn't do it. I never conformed to the lifestyle of a prisoner. You know, I didn't um, hang out in the yards. I didn't get into the drugs. I didn't get into the bull crap. I just con consistently went to school. And I worked in the law library for many, many years. While I was in there, I also embarked on a writing campaign in which I wrote maybe 30 to 40 letters every single day for 14 years by hand. One month, I will target politicians in New York City. Next month, the community activists. Next month, you know, the, the, the court system, the district attorney. Within the 14 and a half years, I wrote over 74,000 letters. Unfortunately for me, one of those letters landed on the desk of a retired New York City detective by the name of Michael S. Race. And in my letter that I wrote him, uh, I had asked him to do certain things if he, you know, to help prove my innocence. And he did exactly what I asked him to do. And within three weeks' time, I got a letter from him saying that he actually found and identified the guy who actually committed the cab driver murder. Um, mm. Uh, he came up to the, uh, I was at Greenhaven at the time. They, uh, made me take a lot of detective tests. I passed it. You know, uh, Michael Race got back in the streets doing his thing. He got Sarah Wallace from Eyewitness News in New York. A lot of you guys probably know him, her. Channel 7 Eyewitness News. And got attorney Ronald L. Kuby. Ron Kuby, attorney from uh, Manhattan with the ponytail. Him and Curtis Sleewer. And he became my attorney. And uh, they actually put in a motion to compel the district attorney's office to identify some fingerprints that I had found in one of those years that I had embarked writing the district attorney's office every day for 30 days. Well, in one, one, in one year in particular, I began to write them during Christmas time. And the regular district attorney that they assigned to me, who kept me from seeing anything, wasn't there. And they had a new district attorney there. I found out later there was a district attorney that they just hired. Well, fortunately for me, she sent me a document stating that they took fingerprints out the car and that they did not belong to me. Oh. We never got that during the course of the trial. Never. So I took that and held that. It wasn't until three years later that when um, Michael Race took my case over and I sent it to him. And Ron Kuby seen it. And that's where Ron Kuby said, you know what? We're going to submit a motion to the district attorney asking the district attorney to compelling the district attorney to identify who Prince was in that car. Also, fortunately for me, while Sarah Wallace was doing one of the story on my case out in the Albany Projects in Brooklyn, a young lady walked up to her and said, you guys are doing a story on Anthony Faison. I was known as Shandu in Brooklyn from back in the 80s, man. I used to run the streets of Brooklyn with the real 50 Cent, the real homicide, 
from off notion. Those were some of my guys I hung out with, but she said, he didn't do it. My boyfriend did it. So she gave an affidavit to Kubi. Kubi took that affidavit and attached it to the motion with the fingerprints, asking the judge to compel a district attorney to identify the prints. And it was Mother's Day in 2001 when I was in Chihuahua, the Supermax. They put me in the Supermax because I wrote so many letters and I was getting so many letters from congressmen, legislators, councilmen, that they kind of feared me in a sense. Because, you know, in prison, you know, they don't feel you because you're big and strong because they'll send 20 officers at you. But then when you have the intellectual ability to articulate yourself on paper and pen and you got these type of people writing you, that's when they fear you. Mm-hmm. So they put me in a supermax. So it was uh, Mother's Day of 2001. I'll never forget it. I called home and wished my mom a happy Mother's Day that night. And she had told me that, uh, you know, that Ron Kuby and Michael Reyes and Sarah Wallach just left the house. And they said that I was coming home tomorrow. I was like, well, are you serious? I really thought she was joking, you know. But then she started crying. She said, no, serious. They said, you're coming home tomorrow. I was like, oh, wow. So, you know, I, I spoke to her just before we locked in at 10 o'clock at night. And I'll never forget it, man. It was like yesterday. Uh, uh, that Monday morning, uh, the uh, correction officer came to, to the cell about 6 in the morning, the new shift, and he Right in the gate, they said, "Get up, get up, get up." He, he kind of joked with me because I knew him. He said, "Hey, man, I woke up. You was you was in the house this morning." I was like, "Man, what are you talking about?" He said, "Man, you're all on the news, man. You're on the front page. You showed me uh, the the uh, Daily News, and uh, I was on the front page." And he threw the draft bags in there and told me, "Pack up. The jail is on the lockdown until you out of here." So I was like, "What do you mean?" He said, you know, the deputy superintendent of security, that's equivalent to the police commissioner in New York, walked up to my cell with about five officers, say, pack your stuff. And they escorted me to the front of the jail and uh, to the administration building. And uh, I seen these three guys standing there, all three of them in suits. They didn't say a word, you know? So I was like, what the hell is going on here? Uh, you know, after 15 years of being in prison and seeing what I seen, Back in the 80s, you know, you're very distrustful of anybody. Mm-hmm. Why are you taking me out to jail like this? You know, so I was you know, kind of leery in a sense. But um, I went with them. They uh, searched me down, put me in that little monkey suit they put you on and shackled me up and gave me to the custody of these three people. And uh, they put me in a car, drove me off the property, and then they pulled over. And I'm like, what's going on? They're going to kill me or something. You know what I'm saying? I ain't going to know what's going on. So, uh, he got out, told me to get out, took the cuffs off me. Mm-hmm. They said, Mr. Faison, we caught Mr. Arlette Cheston. We arrested him Friday night because the prince, well, I forgot, I should have told you. The judge granted that motion and compelled the district attorney to identify those prints found in the car. Be mindful, we had the girl saying that it was her boyfriend. My lawyer got a call from the district attorney saying, this only happens in Hollywood. But Arlette Cheston, the guy who they said they found Prince and the girl who said it was her boyfriend, his Prince was found in the car. It was a match. They picked him up that Friday before Mother's Day. And uh, at first he was saying that it wasn't it wasn't him. It was me. They kept him for two days. Well, Saturday night, about two in the morning, he confessed that it was him and I wasn't with him. And he did it by himself. He robbed the cab driver. So that's why they went straight to my mother's house and uh, told her. And after that Monday, when they came and got me on the way home, they told me that 
we arrested Mr. Arlette Chestnut, Chestnut and uh, we're sorry. Oh, the district attorney's office, we're sorry. You're being released this morning. We're on our way to Brooklyn Supreme Court. And uh, I was arrested with another individual by the name of Charles Shepard. He also lived in a building that I lived in in Albany Projects as well. So we get down to the courthouse and we pull up. I just was like maybe hundreds of people, man. Cameras. Be mindful. I spent the last uh, 14 years riding everybody you could possibly think of in New York City. So once the word got out, they were there, you know, politicians, community activists, supporters. And I get into the court and I was released that day. Uh, after spending out, you can actually go on YouTube and just Google Anthony Faison, F-A-I-S-O-N, and it, my whole life pops up. And uh, so uh, I was released that day and uh, I had to go into hiding for a couple of months because the press was, this was the first false imprisonment case that was so big in New York City, actually, because again, I credited all of that to the writing. So it was very, so uh, I did all, I went in speaking engagements across the country, all the TV shows, I did them all, except Oprah. Anything else I did, talk shows. <laughs> you did raw though. <laughs> yeah, I did all the colleges, I did everything. So uh, he's in New York, I, I did all of that, you know, and uh, as a result of my case, actually, in the grace of God, uh, Several other men was free because now the judicial system was uh, more open to believing that police officers don't tell the truth and the courts can't keep the position to say because a jury convicted you, you're guilty. My case kind of set the precedence for them to say we can't look at these cases anymore. We have to look at the cases based upon the evidence. And when the Brooklyn District Attorney actually began to look at these cases where all of these young men were saying that, yo, I didn't do this. I got set up by this detective in Brooklyn. And this detective in Brooklyn, they began to look at it. And within three years, nine guys was released, all being, being found to be falsely imprisoned. So I stayed in New York City for uh, seven years, and then I moved to Georgia. And uh, just before I left New York, I wrote a book. And this is my book, The Mighty Hand, by Anthony Faison. And uh, I published that book. It's about to be, I'm about to republish it, The Mighty Hand, The Aftermath, that is going to be detailing what I did when I moved to the state of Georgia. When I got to the state of Georgia, I was talking to Ron Kuby, at which time he told me, okay, Anthony, you got out, you're out. Because of my case and my speaking with, state legislators and congressmen in New York State, they abolished the death penalty. Wow. They had the death penalty in New York State. And as a result of my case and what happened, if they would have had it at the time of my conviction, because the death penalty came while I was in prison, I would have been sentenced to death. So I, uh, they abolished it because of that, my case. So when I came to Georgia, my, uh, my attorney, Ron Kuby, said, okay, you're out. You wrote all the letters, you got out, now what you gonna do? So I embarked on a career of law enforcement. I actually moved to the state of Georgia and actually became the first person in American history to serve 15 years in prison and come out and become a federal officer. It's never been done before. What? I did uh, nine years with Homeland, 
two of them years. I did contracting with the U.S. Marshal Services. I went actually went into the police academy and was accepted into the police academy to become a police officer and dropped out to go work for the U.S. Marshal Services in Alabama. And uh, I became a licensed private detective, an executive protection officer, you know, providing physical uh, details for uh, dignitaries and celebrities, armed security. I just went crazy. And uh, today I am the, I'm a future recovery agent for the state of Georgia now where I uh, just about go all over the country uh, chasing down the most violent people that was, uh, that has warrants for their arrest out of Georgia. So that's what I do now. And I'm ready to quit that as well. But basically, I just wanted to prove to myself that even though I went to prison and I didn't have a high school diploma and I went to college and when I left the college, I was at the Master's Theological Seminary. And uh, I just it was like an obsession to me to prove to myself that that false imprisonment couldn't keep me to the front. Well, I'm going to just get out of here. New York City gave me three million dollars and uh and I'm just going to be happy to sit around and just trick it all in the strip club. That wasn't my goal. My goal was to show the people who believed in me that assisted, helped me get out. And all those young brothers that's out here that feel like a sense of hopelessness because they got arrested or uh, because, uh, you know, they dropped out of high school, that their life is over. So I wanted to be that person to show them that that's not true. So when I came down to the state of Georgia, I had embarked on a law enforcement career. You know, and uh, everything that I uh, went and applied for, I obtained. So, you know, now I'm just here, um, you know, I have a family, beautiful family, wife and kids. And uh, now it's time. Now we've got the Black Lives Matter going on. So you hear so much about reform, police reform and uh, prison reform and defund the police and you know, just because I came down and got into law enforcement doesn't mean that I'm a I'm a I'm pro law enforcement because uh, I'm not. My mission, what I did, was for my own personal uh, uh, growth and development. You know, and uh, you know, uh, if I can inspire that person, you know, that person will necessarily say, "Okay, I want to get into this." That person can say, yo, if he did it, he went to jail for 15 years, you know, I want to become, you know, a lawyer. He may want to become a lawyer. I mean, look at my story and if it can inspire him, hey, man, it's a blessing for me, you know, and a blessing for, you know, for the people that believed in me and gave me that support. So if I can give that type of support to a younger brother, to anybody in any kind of way, you know, uh, I'm grateful. I'm grateful. So now I'm here and, uh, you know, I guess we're going to get into the prison reform aspect or, or, or the police reform aspect because I certainly got sentiments about that. And uh, and that's just my, my story, brothers. Sure. Wow. Story. Deep. Deep. <clears throat> appreciate you for sharing that. Appreciate you for sharing that. I'm sorry? Man. That's powerful. I say I appreciate you for sharing that. That's a, that's a powerful story. Thank you, bro. Appreciate you. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. I mean, first, I mean, yeah, it's definitely a powerful story. And just the fact that, like, even out of that situation, that you would have even had the mindset to kind of um, assimilate and not the negative aspect of it, but, you know, you, you, you 
you set a challenge for yourself and you you kind of assimilate assimilated yourself in that world of law enforcement like you a better man than me man because i'll after i would have been in prison for that long i would have wanted no parts you know what i mean so i mean just a, just a, just the fact that you had the mental fortitude to you know set aside all of the you know the mental anguish that you probably endured while you were in the system to still get involved learn and you know again still become a part of that world do the things that you did i mean that that speaks volumes about just like your character first and foremost and just kind of just like the mental fortitude that you have um so yeah i mean stuffy huge you know you're not the you're not the only story but like this i mean like i said you can think of like the central park five you know that that happened to them you know what i mean like we see it all we see it all the time We've seen like just literally just like people in innocent people being ripped away from their homes, and I mean it doesn't it doesn't always play out the way it played out for for Anthony. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? So sometimes like even even the fact that they paid him um, retributions for him being for being, for him being wrongfully um, <clears throat> locked up. Some people don't even get that. You know what I mean? So it's just like it's it's huge. So I mean your story's huge. I'm definitely going to pick up your book for sure. You know what I'm saying? Like, because I mean, I definitely want to learn more. But yeah, like, so let's just have a conversation about police reform. You know, like just over the past two years, that's pretty much been the talk. You know, like you like you threw out those buzzwords, like defund the police. You know, we always talk about Black Lives Matters. Then you have the reverse side of Blue Lives Matters. Like, so a lot of people don't really know what these these things really mean, you know. Like, and I think I think it's important that we have a a healthy conversation about, like, for example, defund the police. What what does that really mean? What does that look like? You know what I mean? Like, is it is it is it rational to go that way? Like, I mean, so what are your what are your thoughts? So I mean, like, I mean, fellas, I'll open it up to you guys. Like, when you think of defund the police, I mean, like, what, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you when you hear that? Well, for me. I understand it is they want to take away the the militarization, the type of weapons they have. They got tanks, you know what I'm saying? They got riot gear and all this stuff, but every city is not going through that. And every every neighborhood isn't going through that. And it kinda it kinda pits the 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 law system against us as if we are actually at war with with one another. So defunding it would take away all those militarized weapons so they could, now they have to figure out a way to actually do policing and not, you know, fight us like we're in a third world country at war with them. That's the, that's the way I understood it to be. Mm. I would, I would, I would say that even going from, there were some key issues that the Black Lives Matter movement put on the forefront of the table that would, would actually in my opinion, reform the police department if you put accountability on their back. See, I'm from New York City, and now I live in Georgia. In Georgia, as a, if you're a police officer and you shoot somebody and it's, you found to be unjustified shoot, you go to jail, whether you're a cop or not. I've never, like when I first got here, it was a culture shock to me when I seen a white, blue-eyed woman um, get arrested for a DUI and lose her job. I said, not in New York City, that would never happen. New York City, what they need to get off, what they need to do, in my opinion, is put more accountability on the police officers. 
If there's an unjustifiable shooting and you shoot somebody, you're going to be charged accordingly. Take away their immunity. They have immunity. If, if they shoot you, no matter what they do, they never charged. They never held accountable for it. Actually, in New York City, the police get uh, accommodations and promotions when they shoot a black male down in the street. We all remember Amadou Diallo, um, a whole bunch of people. They shot, shot the brother 35 times, and those cops got promoted. I don't know if you guys remember that. They got promotion. They became detectives after that shoot. You know? Mm -hmm. Cops feel immune that they there's no penalty for them in certain states. No matter what they do, and that blue wall of silence that's there where they feel that they could do whatever they want to do, and their rank and file is going to say, okay, don't worry about it. We got your back. That's what separates the community in trusting and believing in the police and want to do anything with the police. And this state of mind actually corrupts those law enforcement officers in New York State, places like New York City, because they know they know that there's no accountability, that they basically could do whatever they want to do and get away with it. And as long as they have that type of mentality, it's going to always be unjustifiable shootings, harassment of young black males, because they target us. We're the only demographics in New York State that that experience these type of injustices. Black males, not even so much with the Latinos, black males would actually teach you in a police academy how to profile a black male. So until, in my opinion, until there's an accountability and you take away that immunity, and also when they, when a, when a citizen sue a police officer, besides us from our tax dollars paying it, make them pay for it. Take it out of their pension. Take it Take out of the police pension. Union. Take it out of the police union pension. They'll stop that then. You know? Well, see, yeah, that's a that's another thing with defunding the police. Like a lot of those funds that taxpayers are paying, that's what pays for, for retributions of their wrongdoings. And that's yeah. that's not the right way to do it. They need to they need to make sure they have a way where, like, okay, that person is directly affected by being a dirty cop. Mm -hmm. Right. So yeah, that is that is another thing. Like take it out of their pension. Make yep. sure they, you know what I'm saying they can't get it, they can't get another job somewhere, then their their actual well being is being held accountable for the for the wrongdoings they've been doing as a cop. Yeah, I think that <clears throat> the whole thing about defunding, like I, I agree with I mean, I, I I like the word reform better because I do feel that um Anthony hit the nail on the head again when we talk about just that blue wall of silence like I was talking about it yesterday over lunch like cops don't get fired you know what I'm saying like that you know what happens like they shoot somebody they what happens they get on paid leave pay, pay, paid leave they go through the investigation process you know once all the hoopla or whatever goes on about what actually happened happened dies down they get reintroduced right back into the same situation. They might get relocated. Sometimes they may not even get relocated, but they get reintroduced. Like my my fa my father in law literally was like, it was literally impossible to fire a cop. Pretty much like almost like it's like they don't get fired, right? So it's just I think and what I what I talked to him about. I said, well, I don't even understand, and I know I can be it might be naive, but like I know other countries like there, like there's a country and I, I don't know what country it is. But the police don't even have guns, right? You know what I'm saying? So it's like, so it's like, I to me, I don't understand. And we had we've had this conversation previously. 
like the people that are in the police force, a lot of times they are not psychologically stable enough to even be in those positions, right? You know, they've been, they've been in situations, they've been in, they've been in, like we're talking about the situation with like some white cops. Some white cops, they're extremely sheltered. They've never been in any type of urban environment. Sometimes they've never even seen black people. They didn't even grow up with black people, you know, so then they're part of the city, town. They were just surrounded by what they know is white people. So again, now they want to be a police officer and then they're thrusted in a situation where they, they're in an environment that they have no knowledge of, no experience of, and they're operating not just fear. I, I do believe wholeheartedly that black men, we are targeted. But I also feel that a lot of times these situations happen out of fear, right? You know, they, they fear us and being involved in those situations, they they pull the trigger first. You know what I'm saying? Like it's versus other methods of um stopping the situation, right? Like there's like to me, if there's countries that, that don't even use guns, why do we have, like you said to John's point, we have mil we have police police um police stations that have have access to tanks and like military weapons, you know what I'm saying? Like we like we like we're in the DC area. We saw what happened, you know, two years ago. You know what I'm saying? Like they didn't but again they didn't have that same energy when they stormed the Capitol, right? right? You know what I mean? Right. But they but but they had the same energy for the peaceful protesters and they they were a mil it was a mil it was DC was like a, a military state. But it again it's like, but it goes back to that mental it goes back to the mental aspect of it. Like I feel that like a lot of these people, I feel like with well, a police reform, the whole it's not just one aspect of it. It gotta all go. You know what I'm saying? It has to be totally remixed and re and, and revamp because it has to start from the top. It has to start from a psychological perspective. You need to vet these people that you're putting in these positions. And pretty much all types of nonviolent methods of de-escalating situations, that's what needs to be taught. You know, not this whole lethal force. Like if lethal force has to occur, then it has to occur. But again, they need to they need to take to me, they need to take from those places that are moving away from lethal force and adopt those policies. Because again, I think we do need we do need some type of police element. Even, even if it's not police, we need some type of element that I mean, does actually protect and serve, right? You know what I'm saying? So we, we need that. But again, it's like again. Do we need people with military guns, tanks, dogs, all types of crazy stuff to right. do to just to just to just to protect and serve? You know what I mean? So that's a, I mean that's my thought with whole reform. Like it has to be, it has to be totally remixed. It has to totally like this this way. Like we like we said back in like the whole police state again. That was like you gotta look back to the even back to slavery. You know what I'm saying? The police were ran by the Klan. Right, you know what I'm saying? Like so, so again, you have white, you have you have a system in America that is quote unquote to protect and serve, but its very roots is built upon white supremacy, right? And again, it's something even though even though you have black faces within those organizations, the roots are still built under white supremacy, and again, it has to change. So we don't we don't have ten more Anthony Faison's. We don't have the Central Park Five. We don't have these people. The um, all these crazy these cr these crazy police brutality situations would have happened. Like so many names. It's just like 
But defunding it, it's not, I don't think that's the answer. I think it's kind of like reallocating it, remixing. And again, like it has to it has to be stripped down to its core. You know what I mean? Like that's that's how I feel. I got a question, Mr. Faison, or any of y'all that can answer it. Like, say like last week, right, in, in Baltimore City. I'm from Maryland. I live in Maryland now. Um, in West Baltimore, like six people got shot, right? And it almost got national coverage uh, to where they, you know, almost called it a mass shooting. But, you know, it seems like it's because it was black people and black crime that they just pushed to the side. Then, OK, now it's just black on black. Like, well, what do you say? How do you challenge the people that question, you know, whether black lives matter? With, you know, were we constantly killing each other through crime, you know, every day? Like, how do you challenge that? How do you? How do you respond to that? Or how could we even start to fix situations like this? I mean, for for black people, I mean, mo most of these type of shootings happen in um in areas that have already been defunded. Basically, you know, you take Baltimore, like a lot of stuff that school after school programs and in school programs. I mean. Any, anything that really could have been helping the youth now has been taken away from most of these cities that they call uh, a black-on-black, -black, a high black-on-black -black crime area. But that's because the youth don't have nothing to do. So it's easy to get in all type of trouble and you start being versus your own your own kind because you don't have any resources in your own, in your own area. So a lot of that starts to become bread and then that's where you have more gang violence. Money? Oh, I'm about to see. <laughs> we sound cool, my dog. Yeah, a lot, a lot of that stuff becomes bred out of out of desolate situations where resources have been taken away. Mm. And of course, when when resources are scarce, then people start scrounging and, and, and trying to go. You know, if, if 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 they see one of you guys got it, oh, we're gonna gang up against him and make sure we get it from him, and then we're gonna spread it amongst ourselves. Then when we get it, they gonna come back and get it, and, and it becomes a, a back and forth thing. And that's what gets bred out of out of desolate situations. So, a lot of times, you could say black on black crime was a planned situation for for to happen amongst, you know, you you put you put a you. It's just like making a project. When you make a project, you just stack people on top, on top, on top, and you take the resources away from. Them, so now, what they going to do? That that project building is going eventually. Everybody's going to be at each other's throats for whatever resources is left to surround. I mean, that's the way I look at it. I kind of, I kind of look at it a little different. I kind of look at it a little different. Right, kind of look at it a little differently because, in my opinion, as a, as a, I'm sorry, as a father as well, to me, there's no justification in for a young black male putting an illegal firearm in his hand and shoot up the corner. There's no justification <laughs> for him to him or her to pick up a firearm and then go shoot into a house with a bunch of kids and grandmothers and mothers. It's a, in my opinion, it's a sense of hopelessness, a sense of being fatherless, a sense of self-worth and self-value and no regard, in my opinion, for their own lives. And the, and I see this every day. It's an epidemic going on across the country with these young black men's the worst it's ever been. It's never been this worse, this yep. bad. 
we grew up, I grew up in the 70s and 80s, man. We, I mean, uh, I grew up, we grew up in poor neighborhoods. We ain't have nothing. We really ain't have nothing back then. But we didn't pick up a gun and go shoot up the corner and shoot six people. And then, you know, with the gangs that's going on and, you know, our young males as opposed to being reared and, 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 and following their role models of their um, grandparents or the positive people in the neighborhood, they're being influenced by the gangs. I mean, it's bad. So it's not, the police ain't got nothing to do with it. Not in that sense. Okay, so the police, uh, uh, they see the police jump on this guy, right? I'm going to give you better examples. We had so much of Black Lives Matter marches and protests going on for reform across the country. It was beautiful. It was the first time in American history that that happened. Because if people studied the history, it wasn't the adults that ended apartheid. It was the kids. It was the kids that began marching and protesting down the street that ended apartheid. So right after the Black Lives Matter movement happened and all across the country, as soon as it died down, what happened? We had a mass epidemic of black on black crime. It's conflicting. So who are they to blame now? Who are we going to say? So it put the put those people, law enforcement and people who said, oh, they use an excuse that they're animals, they're wild, which I totally disagree with. But it gives them the justification to keep doing it because they say you 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 don't even respect your own community, you don't even respect your own neighbor. And until we be able to grasp that and, put, and get our youth under control where we're in a position where we can go out there and say, even us, they had a mass shooting on the corner, me and you go there. We have a high probability of getting shot ourselves. Why? Because we're going against the street code. I don't believe in that. I have six kids. I don't, I don't believe in that. Because it would hurt me to my heart to know that my son was killed by a guy he blew up, grew up on the same block with. So I don't, I don't support it. I don't believe that that's the police that have anything to do with that. You know, when it comes to black-on-black -black crime, I don't think the police have nothing to do with it. When it comes to black-on-black crimes, that's black-on-black. -black. That's the youth. And unfortunately for us, also for those of us who know our history and studied our history, this is the worst, and I hate to say this, hey, come here, this is the worst generation in regards to the contribution to black life and black culture in the history of this country. It's worth generation. They have the, they, don't, they didn't contribute like like our father's so what generation you, did. What do you um what do you say and that's just my opinion. What do you say bred that type of uh, of generation of black males? What would you say what would you say bred that? I'm sorry? I said, what would you say bred that type of generation of black males? Like, where did we, where, where did we get to a point where that that self worth is in there, and you can't look at, at the next black man and be like, okay, especially like you said on my own block, you can't even look at the, the next man on your own block and be like, all right, I have a certain type of affinity for that person that I grew up with, that person that's on the same block as me, his family, his, you know what I'm saying. The close surrounded. We don't even we don't even have that no more. Can you uh, blame the crack epidemic epidemic for that? I could blame that, and I could blame mass incarceration of black men. Like, yeah. there's no, there was no, there was no. You, you had no kind of example. Like we talking about those those type of people that he's talking about in his era started depleting 
depleting yeah. as we got locked up more and more and got stripped away from our family. So, like, you know what I'm saying? Then you have, you know, you got single mothers out here raising a whole bunch of men where you got to start looking to the street for the big homie or somebody that's, they on some illegal shit. They trying to get to the bag. They not worried about your, you know, your, your, like, like somebody always talking about the big homie. Like, if your big homie ain't telling you that, like, your big homie, I, like, I, a lot of people, big homies wasn't really their big homies. Put it like that. You know what I'm saying? They wasn't. They had them in the streets. They put the guns in their hands. They had. They knew that they was young, too young to get locked up for certain things. So they had the, the young boys go wild and out. You know what I'm saying? They could get out. Of, they could get out of jail faster or get away from doing murders and stuff like that if they was underage. So those are the those are the reasons why I think a lot of that affected what we see today. This this is the birth of that. You know what I'm saying? What we saw a combination of mass incarceration of black men and and drugs, right? So yeah, I mean, I definitely agree. Um, I agree to a certain extent. I, again, I think it's just the situation. I think this generation is it's kids raising kids. You know what I mean? So right. just like, just like, just like you said, Marv. Like we didn't like, like we're lucky. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm lucky that I lived with my mom, but I also had my grandfather in the same house and my grandmother in the same house who. They witnessed the stuff that they saw in the civil rights. You know what I'm saying? Like even my mother witnessed just stuff like that. Like we don't have, but you know, as as time has passed, kids are ha kids are having kids, right? You know what I'm saying? So it's like, so it's like, kids are you're 16 and you have a kid. You know what I'm saying? It's like you don't and you're you're such so young. What are you instilling? What are you instilling into that into that seed? You know, a lot of a lot of times. We're not even, the young parents aren't even, they're not even really raising their kids. You know what I'm saying? They're letting the internet, you know what I'm saying? They're letting the TV because they're, they're young themselves. So I just think that that lack of, that lack of that generational knowledge, you know, however it got stripped away, whether it was from mass incarceration or just kind of like, just like the overall gradual, like disbanding of, Black families, because back in the day, like, I mean, back in the day, people's whole family, like, you know, like in the 60s, 70s, your grandmother was around the corner, your aunt was like two blocks away, you know what I'm saying? Like, your family was there, you know what I'm saying? So, and, and that whole concept of, you know, it takes a village, people embrace each other's families, be like, oh, I'm not gonna let, I'm not gonna let little man wild out, you know what I'm saying? They're gonna be like, hey, Miss Jenkins, I seen Johnny tripping on the corner. You might, you might want to handle that. You know what I'm saying? But it's kind of like now, now it's kind of like everyone's trying to fend for themselves, right? You know, it's like it's not my, it's not my problem. I'm not going to step up. I'm not going to say anything, right? Because again, you've seen it. Like if someone just tried to step in, like say you seen something on the street with tripping, you might say, "Hey, hey, boss," you know, what I'm saying that may not be a good look. That same 16-year-old parent, 18-year-old parent, they're cussing you out because they don't know no better, right? right? You, know, right. you know what I'm saying? So they be like, like but how the, how the hell are you going to tell me about my kid? But at the end of the day, you a kid. You're still, you're still right. a kid. You know what I mean? Right. So, I mean, it's, I think it's a combination of things. I also think that when it comes to something you said, John, again, with Black and with the way, the, the sense of hopelessness comes from the situations. Like, again, it, we talk about it all the time, like, all of this stuff, like if you looked at, um, it was a show that came out on Amazon. It was uh, that horror, that horror show, them by by Lena Waif, right? 
they actually showed on one episode what white people did to like like for example like um Compton right and, and Compton Compton was a, a white neighborhood right like back in the day it was a white neighborhood but they oh, started yeah. giving they, they started giving crazy loans like loan like they were like giving loans to black people to get houses in Compton right and they they were moving the white people out and moving the black people in because they were giving them high interest loans right so right. they were getting so they were creating these neighborhoods, but really taxing them to even be in the neighborhood. Right. right? You know what I'm saying? So again, you're That's why I was somebody, before, like some of these, some of these, some of these situations are created from the top, from some, from some group of mastermind. Like at first, those the, the way they come to became a, a a flourishing white community was they were making Levittowns. You know what a Levittown is? Yeah. So basically, they were doing that, and then later on, after a certain amount of years, now they giving high interest loans to black people to move in. So they went from one plan to the next plan. You know what I'm saying? But, 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 but no, no, so that, yeah, and it's so crazy when 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 you do the knowledge that you see, like, okay, first first we gonna have this flourishing uh, neighborhood for whites, and they can raise their kids and have good schools. Then we do this where we can we can cheat black people. And make them pay high interest interest on loans and have them move in and have white flight, and then we take all the resources with us. Like it's all like, a plan. But my point to that, and then we can move on from that, is just like because it doesn't have to be like that. You know what I'm saying? Like because we can't just like we say it all the time. Like we were talking about the the election, right? You know, we talk about politics. You know, for whatever what it's worth, who you voted for, whatever it doesn't matter. Like until we get involved in that local, that lo the whole local legislation, the decision making, yeah, decision making. None of it, like like Trump, like Trump, Biden, for what what you like them, you don't like them, whatever. That shit don't really matter. You know what I'm saying? It's it's again, it's what's it's what's local. You know what I'm saying? Like so, the whole thing is is some of these white communities. It's on top of my watches. Some of these white communities are just as desolate. In some of these black communities, right? But again, Majority. they still, right. yeah. But they still have, but they have the thing, like you said, John. They do have the resources. They have the programs to, like, yo, we're going to keep these kids off the street. You know, these white kids, we don't have the, they may have the same, same life as these black kids on the corner. But we're going to keep them in this. We're going to keep them in that. But that's because they have lawmakers and policymakers that have create those situations to do that. So until we get involved. As a, as a whole in the totality and we start affecting that change to be like hey guess what we are going to create systems in place where there is no more corner you know what I'm saying or the corner is going to be revitalized to look like this it's going to be a safe haven versus a place for violence you know what I'm saying because it, again it has to change and again I also think that the reason why black on black crime in this period I think just crime and period like we've seen like never we've seen all these senseless killings is the value of life has been devalued so much, right? You know right. Saying? Like, and and that, and that's that's the that's the thing. Like, you can be five years old, six years old, and you can YouTube uh, murder, and you can see that. You can see you can you can see that. So it's like you're not going to tell me that if when you were five years old, if you saw someone literally get killed on camera, that that wouldn't affect you. But now. You can see it anytime that you want on your phone, on the computer. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. You can see it. So 
those are all the things that are all playing into that. And that's why I'm saying, like, when you reform, when you reform the whole police system, it's it, it starts. It's a mental thing. It's, 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 it's mental at first. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta break down all those systems, and it has to, it has to start from the ground up. There's like this whole, this whole narrative because it's just as poor white people as poor black right. people. Right. You know like, you, you, right. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Like you can go. Like they don't talk about. Like you know. That's why they keep it hushed. But all of that stuff with like crystal meth and stuff like that. That's their. That's their. That's their. That's crack. their. That's, you know that's right. That's right. <laughs> that's their. That's their crack. That's, that's why right. you see it say they. They so they're hush hush about it. But all the stuff that we went through the eighties, it's a whole population of white people going through the same thing. It's just a. It's just right. a different thing. Right. It's just a different thing. But then um the difference. The difference is they, they treated their situation like an epidemic. They treated our situation like a war. They made it criminal, right? They they yeah. made they made they called it the war on drugs with us. Now it's the the epidemic <coughs> um, the opioid epidemic. Right. Created programs to treat people and, and they didn't they're not criminalizing people that, that actually are sick because they're right. addicts. For us, they said, well, we just gonna raise. We just gonna raise the amount of time we put you in jail for for small amounts of the same drugs that that white people do is just in a different format. Right. So, I mean, it's our our country. No matter what, it, they're always gonna target us and make us seem worse off than any other type of person that's on this land. It's that's that's one thing about reform. So if we do if if we're gonna reform the police, how do we how do we get to that that uh? element that's in their brain that makes us always be more criminalized than any anybody else like how do I we think how more do we so i think that? more so when you say all these things like you said i think that plays off with stereotypes so like right it's just it's making a perception of people that that's all it is the only thing that's going to change how we are treated is how we are perceived you know what so i'm saying we like present, we have to present better yeah and how it's perception wise like projected better. about us you know what i'm saying like and where it's perceived, I, like I got, I travel. So, like I said, I go to other countries, like Colombia. Colombia, they take pride in the Afro Latina and shit like that. You know what I'm saying? So it's like they, we're not perceived the same way as, as say, a DR with the Haitians or like somewhere where, like even here. You know what I'm saying? In certain, in certain neighborhoods, like it's just not a, percep a perception of black people, so to speak, in those areas. So, so go ahead. We got a couple. We got a couple questions in the chat too, y'all. Okay. Um, so I'm gonna read one off from She's So Natural. She says, uh, do you believe um that if defunding the police will backfire? What if police all over the country decide to protest and not work? Sort of like what we see in Portland, Oregon. Like how do we avoid that? I mean, I mean in we, reality, we need I mean, who's that gonna police. hurt us? That's not gonna hurt us like <laughs> I mean we need them for they don't help us anyway. So how do <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Just respond. Like somebody not helping you go like, all right, if they're not helping people that is like we're talking about them, how would that affect them? <laughs> like, uh -huh. I mean, I, to to answer her question, like what I was saying before, de defunding the police does not mean taking away things that are necessary. It's taking away the things that are unnecessary. Like right. militaristic tanks and all that, all those type of weapons that they have and gear. We don't need that unless we're going to war with each other. That's the that's the, the perception they give when they pull out the tanks and the militarized weapons. We need to take those back. You know what I'm saying? They still they still need to have their, their bulletproof vests, their guns that they have, their tasers that they have, their vehicles that they have. 
but not a tank. <laughs> well, be mindful. Barack, Barack Obama took the tanks, and Trump gave them back. Oh, okay. I didn't even know that. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. He took all the tanks from the police departments in the United States and made them not put them on the streets. And as soon as Trump counted one presidency, he gave them all back. Okay, because he did. Yeah, he did reverse a lot of stuff. Yeah. But yeah, people, people got to understand defunding is not it's not taking away the necessary that police need to do their job. It's taking away the unnecessary stuff that that makes it look like we when uh, what you said it was Nick uh, 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 a police state. Did you say a police state? Pretty much. It was, a police, yeah, so, it was a police state almost. Yeah, so the things that they have in place that make make us look like we're in a police state, they need to take those away. And that's that's the part of defunding because trillions of dollars go into that across the country. Them buying tanks, buying, you know what I'm saying, all types of guns that, that's not needed just to do work in a, in a, in a law firm, you know, situation. It, it just It's just unnecessary. But they're, they're quitting over the reform bill, though. That's what I'm saying. Over the bill alone, they're quitting. Yeah, because but but there's another aspect of it too. The, the defunding the police wasn't just was it just was not actually centered around the actual tanks, in my opinion. It was cent centered around that they're getting too much of the communities where they serve tax money, and they're using this money to oppress the people. So black leaders and Black Lives Matter said that you know we're gonna we give you besides giving New York City, $300 million a year for your police department. We're going to take $100 million away from that. That's what they're talking about. The police department position is saying, okay, you took $100 million away from us, so now we can't hire as many cops. Now we can't give overtime as much as we used to. And now we're not able to provide the necessary tools to police officers in the communities to combat crime. My opinion, that's a bunch of bullshit, personally. Because they're getting too much of money to just walk around here and act as if they're invincible when it comes to the rights and the plights of people of color. So, you know, there's a whole lot of different aspects to that defunding. And part of that defunding was also to make them more accountable for what they do. And that if they, if, they, if they are found guilty of violating a certain rule that infringes upon the constitutional rights of a minority person in the community, that they got to pay for it out of pocket. That their union or their police fund has to pay for it, as opposed to the tax people. So that was another aspect of the defunding part. And this is what the police don't want. They're not saying that, but that's, that's their position, that... If you defend, if you defund us, and you you now, as opposed to the same people that they're oppressing, paying for their fuck ups, now the police department got to pay for it. That's the real issue behind, in my opinion, with the their position. Why they saying, you know, we don't want. Why should we be defunded? You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Got another question from the chat. No, I, I got a question for Mr. Faison personally like back to your story and you know the real reason we one of the reasons we're here today um, how did you cope with your situation and any advice to somebody who because it's, it's happening to this day they know they're innocent um, you know but they still behind bars waiting on their trial 
how do you how do you cope with that situation did you did you were you strong enough you know you had enough faith you understood that you know i'm eventually get out of this personally like how did how do you cope with that you know there was no i went to prison when i was 19 and i came out when i was 35 Mm. so i was a young man when i went into the prison but you know i i they say black people, when we've suffered adversity in our life, we respond to it. And when I went into prison, I just had the state of mind and I said, "Now nah, I can't let this happen to me. I mean, I couldn't. I just can't. I know I didn't do it. And the only way that I felt that I was going to be able to pr- prove my innocence was to educate my sister, educate myself so that I could be able to understand the law and how it happened to me. And in the course of that, I I understood that there was a lot of police corruption going on in the 80s. A lot. I mean, cops was caught sticking up weed houses, selling coke. You know, you got the book, The Buddy Boys, the 77th Precinct, the 75th Precinct in East New York. There were just 10 guys released from one precinct, from one cop. One detective, a homicide detective in East New York, he said he framed 10 people. So, you know, you have to you have to have that personal strip. Yeah, I've seen guys that said that they was innocent and committed suicide mm. while I was in there. They committed suicide. They just said, fuck it. I got 20 years. I'm just going to do the 20 years. I took the position to say, I'm not going to let that happen to me. I have to fight the best. I did 15 out of a 20 to life sentence. Mm. You know, I, 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 the judge, you know, he thought he, he said, you know, when the when the girl that, that got on the stand and falsely accused me, she was a crackhead. She said she seen me shoot somebody from a block and a half away. Anybody know Brooklyn? She was on the corner of Bergen Street, and I was in front of 193. That's a block and a half away at 4 o'clock in the morning, and they believed her. You see? Mm-hmm. So, and that was the only evidence. There was no gun, no witness. Nobody else never said that. Just her. Did you, did you know the shooter personally? No, I don't. I see him around the neighborhood. Yeah, I see him around the neighborhood. Yeah, I seen him before, uh-huh. and all during this time he never came up. But I've heard things while I was inside that he had, may have been involved. But I wasn't there. I didn't yeah. see him, you know. So you know, but I, I would say to anyone that's that's in a situation, not just being falsely imprisoned, but any form of adversity. You know, we had parents. Our parents was married and the father left and we had our mom struggling to take care of us. That's a form of adversity that makes a person say, you know what? I can't let this happen to my kids. I got to do better. I got to raise my kids. And we've seen our moms come up. Mm-hmm. Right. Same form of adversity and mental strength and self-belief in a, in a person that makes a pe- person want to fight. And I mean, I, that's just what got to me. Man. I think the biggest thing that you said was like, you're more a threat mentally than physically Absolutely. i think that's I, I think that's key like i think that even even outside of jail the most powerful weapon that we have is it's knowledge right. you know you know right. what i'm saying and just like he said but he had to learn the law to learn the law to to play their game you know that's something that's something that literally my my first roommate in college he said he was like, and again, like I'm not gonna say what he said, the word, but he said you got to beat them, and he said you got to know their game better than they do, and you got to play it better than they can to beat them at it, and that's the right. whole thing. And it's like, 
that's what they fear the most. They fear when someone like knows, like even in like, I mean, the situation which you guys know I was, I was in with my grandfather and it was nothing criminal. You know what I'm saying? Like I was spitting out, I, I, I immersed myself in elder law for, for months, right? You know what I'm saying? Right. So like when I'm, when I'm having these conversations with this nursing home and I'm talking about what about this point in Montgomery County law? What about this, 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 this? They had to listen because it was like, they were like, okay, well, this fool knows what he's talking. He, we can't just pull the wool over his eyes, even though, you know, they still did, you know what I'm saying, in certain aspects, but they had to respect, they had to respect and take heed. They had to, they had to, they had to get more weapons against me because they knew, okay, well, we just can't hit them with the old baby on the corner trick, right? right. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like, I think that, I think that's, that's key. That's key. Like, and that's all we talked about it, but like we talked about it last week, even when we're talking about how you said like they're trying to <clears throat> kind of white, and we're going to get into that when we talk about Juneteenth in a couple minutes, but like how we were talking about how slavery, how Texas is trying to remix slavery as it was kind of like an indentured, an indentured servant type situation, how we came here voluntarily to work and shit like that. You know what I'm saying? Like, and Marv said, yo, it's never going to rock because we remember. You know what I'm saying? In a second, as long as we carry that knowledge to wherever we go, they can't take it away from us. And, that, and that's why I think it's so important that we have people that look like us having these conversations, trying to push police reform, <coughs> police reform, prison reform, because we didn't, we, we, we remember, we didn't forget. You know what I mean? Like we, we can, we're articulate. We can carry a conversation. You know, we can use our words. Words are more powerful weapons than guns. You know right. what I mean? Like words, way more powerful. Your words, your words can echo for eternity. You know what I mean? Like you, you shoot somebody, you just another shooter. At the end of the day, you know what I'm saying? Like again, like the type of words. If you use your words right, your words can live indefinitely. So it's like it's just like this conversation is going to continue. You know what I mean? Like we're nowhere near the end of it. You know what I mean? It's going to keep on going and going and going. Well, unfortunately, we're probably going to see more. Um, senseless acts but again it's just like a, like like i want to hear more stories like um mr Faison because i mean it's definitely like again it's, it's huge it's, it's definitely huge and i think it just speaks it just speaks volumes again it's not just being just you know just showing that hey you can still make it through the system and again like and i will ask you a question about that um to my follow-up question to you but again then like what what made your what made that decision for you to hey I want to I want to go into law enforcement like did it ever like kind of get to you while you were kind of like in like when you were in those roles like like some of these some of these jokers were the same jokers same type of jokers that got me locked up and made me lose fifteen years of my life like how like how can you how can you kind of navigate through that without not being jaded right well you know I remember if. People, if, if you can remember or you have knowledge of, federal law says that a police force must represent the demographics of their given community. For example, I forgot the name of the case where the police shot the guy, the young kid in the back, and the federal government came and fired the entire police department. You know why? Because it was 90% white and a 90% black community we can't say we want our we want we we tired of these people these cops and most of the i'll say 99 percent of police shootings of minority people is from white male police officers 
Okay, so if we take the position and say, okay, the hell with the police. Well, I don't want to become the police. You can't take the same position and say that uh, I don't want to become a cop and I don't want black cops in my community. And you can't say because they're there. Federal law says that that, that police force must represent the demographics of the community. Somebody got to do it. I mean, even if you go back to our to our ancestors and our tribal in Africa, the security, quote unquote, the tribal men, quote unquote, law the the law were people that look like them. They governed one another. So to take the position and say now because it, 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 you know we can't do that, you can't have, complain about it both ways. So my position was that hey, you know what? I know that it never happened with me. I know that, you know, when, when, when I was, uh, when I'm out there, I know that I'm not going to be, t I never even pull my weapon. Never. If I, if I run up on, if I see, and I, you're only going to see me if you got a felony warrant. And then when you have that felony warrant, I ain't coming to your house and disrespect your parents. And the, God forbid, the last thing I want to do is shoot you. My whole mental perception about trying to take this person into custody is not based upon discrimination, racism, or biases. It's, it's, it's based upon me trying to provide a service to protect my neighborhood. And not to cut you off, big bro, on top of that, I'd rather somebody like you in that position versus somebody that is from fucking uh, <laughs> Tulupa, Arizona. Some crazy shit. Right. That no, he, they never came in contact with my type. So, right. like, the more you in that position, the more better it is for everybody in the long run. Like, and that's the that's how I look at it. It's like I got a cousin that's a um, you know, in the law enforcement, and he tells me like it's certain things he be telling like him being next to a, a idiot cop that might do something that we talking about. We might stop. Be the, might change the whole perspective of how things might turn out. Right. So that's mm. like people don't think about it on that aspect. Like, because yeah, so the more the more you the more the more of us is in there, the more better odds and chances that we have to stay alive, bro. Right. Like, and reform, day. right? You know what I'm saying? So, right. Yeah. So the more the more we got to change the stigma of actually the numbers. Becoming an officer is is a bad thing for black males or black females, like. I don't know if y'all had the same thing. Like when when I was in like elementary school, every year we used to have like officer friendly come to our class. Right. Any ever had that? Yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't know if still do that, but it it was usually an officer from our communities, right? That like us, and you would be that's that's back in the day when kids grow up and say, "Oh, I want to be a police officer." Yeah. Right. I want to be a firefighter. Like now, do they actually say stuff like that? They, they still do. They don't sit. They don't even see people that look like they them do before they get tainted. <laughs> right, that's the key. Before they get right. to where the society tells them what they want to do. Right, program to believe right. against exactly. you. Right, right. I want to be. I want to be officer friendly when I grow up. Man, every hood, every hood had a Scooter Joe, black cop on the block. But that's all by design too. Because they put them there. They know it's a community event. They know that that's a black school. So they put them there mm -hmm. to keep the blinds over the eyes. You see mm -hmm. what I'm saying? They don't put that. And then there's another thing going on in regards to reform that we need to pay close attention to. A, white, a lot of these white nationalist racist groups are got a little smart. They're getting into law enforcement. Oh, yeah. That, that guy who killed George Floyd, 
he was one of them. Oh yeah, yeah he was tried, one. He of them. His, his, his internet activity, and they seen he's one of them. Yes, yes, he's a racist. Yes, those type of uh, those types of groups of people, right. They're joining law enforcement. So what they're not taking a position to say, you know, well, you know, I'm a white, I'm a I'm a I'm down to KKK. I'm not gonna join the police right. department. They just had a big story going on in California right now where they got a whole crew of sheriffs that they all racist and got tattoos on their arm of a skeleton. They all clansmen. That is insane. That's when the FBI need to step in and crack down on their own, man. But they in there, too. The FBI don't crack down. You know what they do? They don't do nothing until they actually get caught. But let me or you be up in the neighborhood, right? And we post on our page one time. Man, I'm going to do this to that cop. They're going to be at your door within two hours. That's a fact, yeah. Yeah. That's how they were, they were able to, to storm the Capitol because they've infiltrated the government, too. So some of those people... Well, allowed them to come in. Allowed, like, oh, these people, these people just walked into the offices. Right. Like, it Fact. was people in place that, that they had already. I mean, they found emails amongst different people that's in the government that corresponded with people that that were about to storm the Capitol in what? I think like six months before they actually did it. So they, they planned ahead. They spoke to the people they needed to that actually work in the White House, and people were able to just. Stand in line and walk in like they was getting led into a concert. Like it's on video, but they try to make it seem as if like these people didn't even they didn't even have to literally storm the Capitol. They just had to show up and be there. And walk in, right? Walk in, walk in, right. in the USA, just walk in, be let in. It it wasn't even it wasn't even no no uh storming actually. It was just like yo, how come all these people is allowed to do what they doing right now on this day? We watching it on camera. Right. They, they've infiltrated the government too. Right. So I don't know how we can combat that with the internet. The internet is undefeated. So like these, these people is all over the country corresponding with each other, making plans, setting things up, and then they got certain people in place that have access to spots that need to be accessed. Like the White House. I mean it's it's multiple every every time there's been a a, a protest. They have infiltrated those protests, and then they start. They, they're the ones that start doing the rioting and looting. They're the ones that they start throwing the Molotov cocktails into the buildings, and then they walk away from it. Then everybody's like, "Oh, Foot Locker got busted up in. Let's get all the jades." Right. Oh, they busted up into the Wells Fargo. Let's try to break into the vault. Right. And remember how many people doing Black Lives Matter protests throughout the country that they was looking for, and, and several of them, and they were white males and females. And then they come in, and they didn't even live in the state that they was at. They came all the way from Arizona somewhere. <laughs> they booked right. trips. <laughs> right, right. And they caught some, a whole bunch of them in the airport. Sure did. Yep. That's crazy. They, um, oh, they, they, call, they call them agent provocateurs. So they, right. they're, not even, they're, not even, they're not even a part of, of these protests. They show up knowing that all I got to do is break into these buildings, set some fires here and there, and then Everybody's gonna see that it's a it's an opportunity to loot, so they're gonna start doing it. And, and to discredit the movement. Yeah, yeah to, to just to discredit the movement, make it that's the key. That, was, that was the reason why they came out there was the loot and the rob and still and, and, and right. Each other. Right. Not the fact that this white cop just killed a black man on national TV. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah they divert the attention. So 
I mean, they got all these. They got all these sneaky ways, and a lot of a lot of people don't understand. Like, if you if you see a, a building busting open and burning down, do you really want to go in there and, and, and take whatever's in there? You want to take that and run with it, or do you want to just be like, I don't want no parts of this. I'm I'm not here for that. A lot of people don't have that that mental aptitude to to choose between seeing something wide open as an opportunity and being like, yo, this is this ain't even what I'm here for. Question, Mr. Faison. Yes. Uh, what gives you the the heart to be able to do this? If you you were once on the blue side, you know, still on both sides, really. But what gives you the heart to do this? And and your advice to any officer who's thinking about it, but he's just too afraid to even use his voice. What gives you the power to use your voice? Well, first, I, my, my, I would say that if he, if he, if if he don't have the belief in himself to do it, don't do it. You know, and don't do it. Uh, that I would tell him, don't do it. I I did it for a purpose. My purpose wasn't to be a lone police officer with his chest running out. I didn't do that. I didn't work on the streets. When I was a federal officer, I patrolled the federal buildings. I didn't work in the streets. I didn't ride around the car, stopping, pulling people over. I ain't never do that. I worked at, when I worked at for Homeland, I patrolled and protected the federal buildings in the state of Georgia. When I worked for the U.S. Marshal Service, contracted with them, I just transported federal prisoners to hospitals and, and, and funerals. See, I kept myself away from that when I did that. Only thing I do now as a future recovery agent, I, you know, it's a little different. I, the, you got, you got Jody that shot up the house down the street. And killed two people, and he went to jail, and and he ironically got out, and then he disappeared. Well, we go, I go find him. So okay. I do it a little different, you know, than mm -hmm. than the officers on the street, and I do it on a on a government level. And personally, like I said, I try to do it to first of all to inspire that individual, and to provide to show that if I could. If I could go through what I went through in my past, and then I could take the position to say, well, I need to protect my community too, other than just being a regular citizen and do it, I really don't, I don't see nothing wrong. A lot of people do because they just, they, they don't know how to separate a cop from a black man with a job. There's a distinction. They know how to, look, they, look, big bro, they know how to separate Rick Ross from being a CO though, right? You know right. I mean? Hey, right. <laughs> right, right. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. They gotta separate that. Right. Right. Hey, look, this is my last question. I'll let everybody else get a question in. Uh, have you been approached by 50 Cent yet, man, for for life season three or any anything no, like that? <laughs> no, actually, no, actually what I'm doing, I'm actually shopping the movie deal right now. Oh, oh on wow. my book. I'm shopping the movie deal. I've I've actually sent it to my agent has sent it to several people from Jay-Z to 50 Cent because it's a real-life story. It's very inspiring. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, the, the attorney general said it, the district attorney said it. Hundreds of people told me that your story needs to be in film or at least a TV series. So I'm on LinkedIn under my name, LinkedIn, Anthony Fazer, and we got my bio and with my movie presentation deck of what I'm trying to shop, you know, but Ain't none of them pick up no phone and call me about it. I had a couple of people from um, Calif movie producers from California come up here to Georgia to meet me to discuss it, but they wasn't talking serious, you know. 
So I'm definitely shopping. I would love for 50 Cent to take all Jay-Z to pick it up. Because we need to see that type of stuff from our community. Exactly. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. So would you, um, are you only interested in doing it on a, on a, on the big screen level? Or you ever thought about doing it on your own? You know, I've, I've recently, over the last year, I've been, I've been tone led by at least 50 people. I haven't been approached by some, 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 some film producers in, uh, Georgia that, that say, Hey man, we'll shoot it. I mean, we'll shoot it, man. We, we, you we'll could do it. You could do yeah. it on a on an independent level. You, yeah. if it's high quality enough, you could you could shop it on a Hulu or a Netflix, and then they pay you big yeah, money. You know? just find for real. I mean, I feel like it should be easier to find really just an angel investor or something like that, and then yeah. you just you know what I mean, bust it down, make it happen. I mean, as long as you long as you got long as you got good video quality and sound mm -hmm. quality, then you can you can actually take something and take it to Netflix and Hulu, and and they can. Put it on their networks, and yeah. you can just build off of that. Then you be on Amazon. You know what I'm saying? Then uh -huh. you you reap more benefits off of that than one of these big studios. They just gonna take your story and, and shelf it, right? So I mean, you can. If you That's what I'm looking for now. Yeah, I'm looking for that actually good now. Sound and good, good video. If you got good sound and good video, I mean. It'll do its own thing. Like, right? I think it's just word of mouth, too. I think it's just, like, stuff, like, doing, having these conversations. I mean, we have this platform now. You know, we're going to share the story. Just share the story. You know what I mean? Like, the more people that hear his story, so the right, though, it's going to fall upon the right ears. Like, this needs to be, the story needs to be told over and over and over again. For sure. It's, it's, you know it's I mean? something equivalent. It's just, like, Hurricane Carter, you know, he was my mentor when I came out. You know, I went to Canada to see him and everything. You know, he passed away. You know, I was initially about to go and move to Canada to to become a part of his organization. He was he inspired me, Hurricane Carter. So, you know, and it, that was one of the things he said. You know, he said you need to you need to tell your own story. Amen. Well, Mr. Faison, thank you for spending some time with us today. You know, it's thank really, you guys really much appreciated. We'll definitely have the link to your book. We'll, um, we'll make sure we get that from you. So we can have it in the episode. So if it is available, people can get it. I know you said you're going to re-release it. So we definitely will support your cause and movement. Um, but, you know, thank you for spending this time with us tonight. We definitely appreciate it. Thank you, it. guys. Thank hey, you, bro. Love all of you, bro. Thank you so much. Thanks. That was an amazing story. Good words. Um, definitely appreciate your, your mindset and, and kind of give us a lot more hope in, in being able to be resilient against the powers that be, you know, was yeah, trying to be put on our neck. So that was that was definitely inspiring. Thank you. Appreciate you guys. Yeah, thank you for joining. Definitely, definitely was honored. Yes, sir. Very appreciate story. You. Appreciate it. You guys ever come to Atlanta? Let me know, man. I'm pulling yes, up, big bro. You already know it's long overdue. Yes, sir. <laughs> I appreciate awesome. you, bro. Love you, my man. Right. Thank you, guys, man. You guys have a blessed. Right. Be safe, man. You too, you bro. Too. Take care. All right, man. Later. All right. All right.